Good afternoon, brethren. Very glad to be here with you. They have to go to all this extra trouble for me and my ailment, and I've been very, very blessed, though, as most of you know. We have such a wonderful, uh, loyal team here. Mr. Ames keeps congratulating me, and he picks out, it seems like, the letters that talk about me rather than about him and his wonderful programs, and uh, I really appreciate him and Dr. O'Neill and Mr. Crockett and Dr. Uh, Mr. Apartian and all my friends here on the team, and we're glad, glad to welcome uh, Mr. Pierre to the team of elders, along with Mr. Bonjour and Mr. Rod McNair, Mr. Uh, Charles O'Gwynn. Hope I'm not leaving anyone out. <laughs> anyway, we have a wonderful team here and really appreciate it very much. Welcome to any guests who might be here. I don't think we have any, but if there's someone that hasn't come before, why come up and say hello later, even though I have had the stroke and kind of uh, cripple around while well, I still enjoy talking to people. And uh, I'm quite a talker. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you quite a while if you ask questions. So anyway, I hope I can help, help you get acquainted with the church. We've been having excellent growth, and I missed out on some of Mr. Ames' announcement, but in case he didn't mention this, you probably did, but I'm especially encouraged, brethren, by the new uh, members that are coming in. Was that mentioned? It may have been, but we 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 were kind of flatlining. We would have some bad guy leave, and then we'd grow, and then somebody else would leave, and then we'd grow, and it's been happening now that way for four or five years, and we haven't had actual growth in church attendance very much for, for, for several years. But now, for the first time, Mr. Rod McNair gave me this very encouraging report from church administration showing that this January 19, uh, here I am living in the past century, <laughs> this January 2009, we had 5% more than last January in church attendance here in the United States. And then in February here, we had 6.2% more. And in March, we had, I think it was 7.1% more, which has gone up and up and up. So it's not only gone up, but even the percentage of increase has gone up. So we are very grateful for that, and I think that trend will continue. I can't say it will continue every single month, but we hope it will, and God can really bless us. Last year, he gave us just under 14% increase, as you know, in income for the year because of this wonderful uh, estate that was given to us near the end of the year by Mr. Joseph Jones up in uh, Baltimore, he was an older man, an elder, about 85, very dedicated. I talked to his ministry. Uh, being a bachelor, he had no, no family, and he just gave the entire thing to the work of God. And we're very, very grateful. God somehow has a way of coming along just when we needed the money, and we certainly needed the money, and we pray that God will give us some more big offerings, hopefully not estates. We don't want anyone else to die, but we do hope and God can provide any number of ways because He is our Creator and He can take care of us. Right now, the money is running just right at, well, practically even. You know, we've been a little below and a little above, and so we're very, very low this year compared to previous years because of the tremendous uh, worst recession in 60 years in the United States. So I do ask all of you to really pray about that for the work of God. And uh, we're not going to raise any salaries. We're not going to do something expensive. We're not going to buy any new airplanes. We're just going to try to keep even <laughs> and keep our employees without having to lay anyone off and try to keep growing the work. 
put more money. As Mr. Ruddleson knows, he has to pray to God to restrain Mr. Ames and me because we get some more money and we say, we're going to go on this new television station, right? <laughs> so we keep spending the money on television and trying to get the work growing. That's what we want to do to reach this world with power. But please pray about that and pray for all these sick people, of course. And I've asked you before to try to pray constantly about that, that God would put within the ministry the gifts of healings because we have more of us are getting old. We're getting various things wrong with us. And that's not unusual. I hope none of you ever get discouraged because most men, when they get to be 75 or 85 or 90, something starts going wrong sometime, as you know. So that's not strange. Yet God does renew our strength like the eagles sometimes if we serve Him. And we pray that God will do that and heal many of these other people, many of whom are getting old that we hear about, uh, are having various of these problems. Not everyone, but so many are. Well, brethren... We all need help, and we all need encouragement in these troubled times. Not only are many getting old, but this society is getting old. And this society is almost 6,000 years old. I know that the Usher chronology shows us that we're over that, but we're not. Even most good chronologists know that Usher was off and off by 20 or 30 years, depending on how you count these accession years of the kings and other key dates that are entering into that. And we've had a number of experts, so-called. You know what an expert is, don't you? An expert is a drip under pressure and uh, a spurt. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so experts are not always right. All of the chronologists that we've ever had in the church, I won't name them, but every single one has been wrong. And so we can't count on those dates. Christ didn't give us an exact date. He told us to watch. Watch world events. And that's what we're trying to do. But according to the ones that study it, nevertheless, nearly all the people that study chronology say that the end of the 6,000-year period would occur somewhere between 2015 and 2020. So it could be somewhere past that. But if it occurs, let's say, in 2018, then you know the, the, uh, seven, uh, the, the tribulation will begin in the spring of 2015, which is exactly six years from now. I think it will probably be a little bit beyond that. I'd like to say sooner. I don't want to say the Lord delays His coming. But at any rate, we know that we've got to be ready whenever that is. We hope it'll be just six more years because the sooner the tribulation begins, the sooner Christ comes. But you know that all over this world, brethren, the prophecies that we have talked about, and i not bragging because many others did this, but they're not here, and some of them are dead and some fell away, but, but, but I talked about myself from the spring of uh, 1952 on when I graduated, the prophecies of the end of this world, they are coming to pass, nearly all of them. And right now in the United States alone, as you know, we've had a whole bunch of strange killings, just a rash of them. Eight people were killed out in up here in Carthage, North Carolina, a week or so ago, as you read this morning's paper, 14 people were killed up in Binghamton, New York the other day. And now today, three policemen were shot up in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, just a rash of killings like that. Now, if that keeps up, I don't think it will. Often things like that happen in spurts, and then it backs off. But I want to warn you and just give you something to think about. If, if this kind of thing keeps on, I will begin to realize, and you will too, that the war in heaven 
that is spoken of in Revelation 12 has probably taken place, and Satan and his demons are cast back down like a roaring lion, and he is going to stir up terrible things when he is finally cast down, and there will be a strange atmosphere over in Europe. Right now, the leaders in Europe are basically normal people, but if you remember on the, the face and the, the ranting and the raving and the hysteria of Joseph Goebbels and of uh, Hitler and Mussolini and how they'd scream and people, great big men twice the size, not because of just his job, but just because of the way he did things, were sprayed of him. They sent there was a supernatural power operating in Adolf Hitler. He was demon-influenced and perhaps at the end demon-possessed. These kinds of things will start happening as the end of this age approaches. So as the economy falters and people lose their jobs and demons are out influencing, stirring people up, why many more people are going to be going hungry, they'll be without jobs, they'll lose their homes, some of them will lose their families, their wife will divorce them because they've lost their job or their home, they'll have all kinds of family fights and upsets, and then of course they'll be hungry and they'll be rioting, there will be big riots in this nation, and there will be more murders and more terrible crimes. And we're living into that time right now. And it's good that we do understand why. But we in this room should have great hope. Great hope. And I really mean that. We in this room should have special hope above all the peoples on the earth except those other ones that are in the true church of God. Uh, we really have tremendous blessings and it's important for us to understand who we are and why. For we have an awesome Savior, an awesome high priest, and we have a friend that we need to understand about. So we need to understand these things. Turn with me, if you would, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is John uh, chapter 1, verse 1. God tells us here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. We don't know what that was. Some of these Protestants say, oh, that was 6,000 years ago, and then the scientists make fun of them. We have never said that. Mr. Armstrong never said that. We've always said it was millions or billions of years ago. And I know that some of you young people, particularly who haven't lived very long, could be very impressed by these scientists who say it was exactly 18 billion years ago or 24 or whatever. They keep changing every few years. I've lived in, I used to even have a whole file on that and I lost it along the way. But they were saying three and a half billion and then six and nine and 18 and 24. They don't know. They do not know. They're tossing around billions of years like ping pong balls. They have different ways of figuring it. But somewhere back in the distant past, the Creator did create the heavens and the earth. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. We need to understand, brethren, that the One who ultimately died for us existed with the Father from eternity. And way out in the blackness of space, Perhaps there's a great blinding light, two great big blinding lights, you know, and they were together and they had all power and energy, awesome energy, way beyond a whole bunch of hydrogen bombs because they can do everything. And one of them then came down to this part of the, of the universe and created the earth. And later he came to recreate the earth 
and bring order out of chaos which had come as a result of Satan's rebellion. And that great being said, let there be light. And there was light as his voice boomed across the earth like rolling thunder. Let there be light. And then he and the Father and the Father through him created you and me through our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and guided the rise and fall of nations, guided the three divisions of mankind, the three ethnic groups of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, guided the dispersion of the nations and gave them their inheritance all over the earth, guided the wars, guided the situations overall to fulfill his purpose and allowed man to go his own way, cut off from God for 6,000 years to write the lessons of human suffering. We're not learning the lessons yet, that is, the world is not, but they are writing the lessons that they ought to be learning in human suffering. Later on, they will begin to learn those lessons when they're finally converted in tomorrow's world, or most of them in the great white throne judgment, because God is not calling them yet at this time. But they're writing those lessons, and God is allowing that. But he then decided to call out a certain number of people to be the kings and priests in tomorrow's world and train them and give them the opportunity to have their chance to be in his kingdom, his very family first. And so he sent his son. God again sent the word, the Logos. And so in him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And it says in verse 10, he was in the world. Christ came into the world, the Logos, the spokesman, the revelatory principle, that great light who had been with God from eternity. He came into the world and the world was made through him. He made the world. He made everything. God the Father could have done it himself, but he did it through the Logos. He did it through the personality who became Jesus the Christ. The world was made through him and the world did not know him when he came, of course, as a human being, as a Jew into the human flesh. He came to his own. He came to the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Yes, we've got to believe in his name, everything he stands for, and really have faith in God, and build that faith, and pray for that faith, and drink into this word so we can see God's word in action, in prophecy, in people's lives, and in every other way, we build that genuine faith. You'll notice over here uh, in this uh, uh, place here in verse 29, John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's called the Word, the revelatory principle, the great spokesman who existed from eternity, the great light. But now he's called the Lamb of God because John knew who he was and what was going to happen. Who takes away the sin of the world. From the beginning, God ordained that he would pay for our sins through the death of this person who was his best friend from eternity and became his son. This is he of whom I said, after me, John wrote, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. John, the, I mean, Christ did exist before John. Even though John was born six months earlier, Christ had existed from eternity. And John knew that. This great being is the one who emptied himself to die for us. And so we should appreciate that and think about the meaning of that. 
and the tremendous love that God had in guiding all that. We, be, we see back here, brethren, in Exodus, if you turn back to Exodus, the 12th chapter, here it talks about how this month shall be the beginning of months, and he's talking about the first month of the year, which we call Abib, or Nisan, and he said, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, verse 3, saying, In the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And they were to have a young lamb, unblemished, a male lamb. Christ was to be a male, completely unblemished, one who had never sinned or turned away from God. And he was to be the sacrifice for the world. Keep it till the fourteenth day, kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts, on the lintel of the houses where they eat it, then they'll eat the flesh on that night uh, roasted with fire and bitter herbs, and they were not to go out until the morning. No, they did not run out that same night. They went out the next night, which people get mixed up. He said in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, Thus shall you eat with the belt on your waist and sandals and your staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this lamb represented Christ, the Lord's Passover, not the Jews' Passover, the Eternal's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods, so-called gods, demons, of, the, of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the ever-living one. I am the true God. He says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you. They were to put that blood literally upon the doorposts of their houses for you eat it. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where the word Passover comes from, you see. The death angel passed over them. So any of you brethren that don't remember this or any of you who are new here understand that. We are under the blood of Christ. And when we take the unleavened bread and we take to symbolize Christ's broken body through that scourging, which he suffered before he died, and then this crucifixion when his blood was poured out, the Lord, when he saw that blood, passed over them, and he passes over our sins if we are under the blood of Christ. Now, unlike the Protestants, we don't think that's, that's the end. That's not the end. That's just the beginning, and they don't even understand that. But Christ forgives our past sins if we repent, and they don't, aren't taught by their ministers what to repent of. But if we repent of real sin then Christ passes over us and God does and forgives our sins. So anyway, that's an important thing. So this day shall be to you a memorial. Verse 14, you'll keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. Keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. It's a spiritual feast. Everlasting. So God commanded that. And three million or more Israelites pre-enacted that. Think about that. Millions of people went through this, put the lambs uh, to death, put the blood up there, and waited until they were protected by God, in that sense, acting out 1,500 years ahead of time. Millions of them acting out 1,500 years ahead of time what later happened to Jesus of Nazareth when His blood was shed. So it's a marvelous thing when you think about it, how God has done this and the meaning of all this. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 52, if you would. Isaiah now, and let's turn to chapter uh, 52. I'd like to read all of it, but we don't have time. Start in verse 14. 13, I mean. 
verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant, here's his special servant. As you read it, you'll see this must refer to that special servant, the Messiah, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as you were astonished, as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. Now, it's kind of awkwardly worded from the Hebrew into the English, but the commentators certainly indicate that it means his face, his whole looks were changed terribly. I've seen a few movies. Some will throw rocks at me for seeing a movie, but I see, did see Ben-Hur a couple, three times, and that was an exciting movie. Remember the chariot race? And after the chariot race, it showed the, the bad guy being dragged around because what he wanted to happen to Judah Ben-Hur happened to him, and the skin was just torn right off of him. And, of course, the Hollywood makeup people were make, able to make it look really awful. But I think that's something like Jesus looked completely covered with blood, and maybe Christ looked even worse than that after this scourging by the Romans. He went through that for our sake so that by His stripes we were healed. So He went through that for us. His visage was so marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of man. So He shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths. They didn't understand. Who has believed our report? Chapter 53, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He'll grow up as a tender plant, a little baby. He has no form that we should desire him. Nothing indicates Christ was unusually big or handsome. He was a normal-looking one. So he was not unusual in that way. He was not big or handsome or unusual. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he had to go through a lot of suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs and the literal meaning of that is sickness says. Now, I'm not making that up. This is printed in here by the printers, and the ones who put this Bible out are the uh, uh, Thomas Nelson publishers, but they're editors. Most scholars understand that's what that Hebrew means. He, was, he has borne our sickness says, so we can be healed, so we can be healed. And I don't want anybody to give up on that promise because we're not getting as many healings as we would like to have. As I pointed out, some of us are rather old. Elisha, one of God's great prophets, one of the greatest prophets of all time, died. He said he died of the sickness he'd had. Well, somewhere God lets us die. And I'm not trying, I don't have any death wish, but if God lets me die, no one should fall away. If a 78 and three-fourths, I'll be 79 in June, so I think I'll make it. But if I don't make it to 79 or 99 or 110, don't give up, okay? That's, that's silly. It's really silly. God lets us live about 70. When he said 70, as I've said, he didn't say, now I've set a stopwatch and it's going to be, you know, uh, zero minus 10 and you count 10 seconds, then you die on your 70th birthday. It doesn't work that way. Some die several years before 70. Some die several years after 70. And I think we understand that, and we should. But in the meantime, those of you who are younger, and hopefully some of us who are older too, according to God's will, certainly can be and should be healed if we develop an atmosphere of faith. And I pointed out a few weeks ago how even Jesus could no, do no great miracles when He came back to Nazareth because of their, not His, because of their unbelief. We need to develop faith. We need to read this book, sort of think about these things, picture these things. 
Know that the great God who's guiding this rise of Europe over there, the great God who's bringing America down, our military is being stretched too thin, it's going down. Now our economy is going down. Other nations are coming up. What's going on? Well, what we've been saying for about, you know, 70 years through Mr. Armstrong and about whatever it would be, 1952 to now, maybe 57 years in my ministry. I wasn't ordained yet, but before I was ordained, I was saying these things, and then I was ordained uh, a number of years ago. But we've been saying these things a long time, so it's happening. He carried our sorrows, we, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of the God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He paid the penalty for our mistakes. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by that terrible scourging he took, we are, and then Peter actually sort of paraphrased it in Peter's translation. If you look up it in 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter says, we were, because Christ had been scourged by that time. We were healed, and we've had many healings, as you know, brethren, I've told you about Howard Clark and how he sat in that wheelchair for 10 or 12 years. Suddenly he was up. I've told you about Mrs. Beam who had one breast removed from breast cancer and then the cancer went into the other breast and she didn't go to a chiropractor. She went to a big medical clinic and she had absolute cancer all through that breast, maybe through the rest of some of her body and God just healed her. And I went back to check up on her. I've told you that. I've told you about the lady in Kansas who came to Burke McNair and me with this withered arm just hanging like a rope. And all of a sudden, after Mr. Armstrong's anointed cloth got there, she was healed. I've told you about Dennis Brady's little daughter, one of my freshman students, a married student, who had got me to go out and pray for his little daughter one time. And I was shaken because I had a little daughter, just slightly older. And it did move me, and I prayed fervently for this little girl who had spinal meningitis and was having convulsions and going like that, and so on. Her fever had gone way up to 103 or 4, and she, a medical doctor, had checked her, given her blood tests and so on, and she had the fatal variety of spinal meningitis. And I anointed her and prayed fervently before Almighty God. And I went away, and I noticed she'd fallen asleep. And the next day, her mother called me, I think the next afternoon, and said she slept for 12 or 14 hours. She woke up feeling good. She wanted to be, she wanted food. The fever was all gone. She started playing. And two or three days later, they brought her to the Sabbath service. And I said, oh, is she, she you sure she, oh, yeah, she said, so, okay, well, that's right. I don't deny what God has done. She was healed supernaturally by God. So many people have had things like that happen. I know Mrs. Uh, Gustin is here. She got on my case a few weeks ago because she, she said she's so thankful what happened to her. She had been suffering from insomnia for, what was it, 12 or 13 years, a long time. She just could not sleep night after night and asked me to anoint her a few months ago. And that very night, was that right? That very night she slept all night. God healed her of something she'd had for 10 or 12 years, just a constant case of insomnia. God is healed through Mr. Ames. God is healed through Dr. Manel. God is healed, I know, through Mr. Apartin. Think of all our older men here. God heals. He's the one that heals. We don't. But people have been healed all over this earth. Back in Mr. Armstrong's time, he had Herman Hay or me join him from time to time in anointing the claws. There'd be a whole pile of anointed claws and have a big can of olive oil 
and he would have us read some of the letters that came in requesting healing, requesting a prayer and anointed cloth. And then after reading those letters, then he would take the lead or once in a while he'd have me lead or Herman Hay lead and we would put our hands, all three of us, on the anointed cloths and pray the same prayer. They would be little cloths all gathered together in a bundle. You just pray over all of them. All of our hands were on the same cloths with the same olive oil praying the same prayer at the same time a very rigidly controlled scientific experiment. You know, all the, con all the conditions were the same. That's the way I mean it was an experiment. But you know what I mean? It wasn't some different thing. What happened? Was everyone healed the same way? No. Why? We don't know, but we have a good idea. About one-third seemed to write in, and they were healed right away. About another third were healed weeks or months later, and about another third seemed to be never healed at all if we got back to them or they wrote us. What's the difference? Some must have had a lot of faith and were healed right away. Others maybe didn't have faith and kept crying out to God and were healed later. Or maybe God was testing them, working with them, teaching them lessons of humility and patience during the meantime that they needed to learn in that way. And then others maybe didn't have faith or maybe they were older and for some other reason, not just they were faithless, but maybe it was God's time for them to go to sleep. And God did not allow them to be healed or else for other reasons they were just not faithful and he, they were younger and not, didn't die. But it was interesting how that worked out that way. The same prayer with the same olive oil at the same time but the same ministers, these claws went out and we had these three different types of results. But God is the same. According to your faith, be it unto you unless God has some other overriding reason which we understand and which we should understand. So, brethren, here Christ was giving his life and then his body by his stripes, blows that cut, it says here in the margin. We are healed. It says, verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led out as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So he was taken from prison. He was given an unjust trial and taken out and crucified, as we know, to pay for our spiritual sins. It says here in verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He bore our sins, your sins. So as you take the Passover, think about it. Don't ever say you haven't sinned. Everyone has sinned. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified right along with a couple of criminals. And he was numbered with them, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Remember back in Luke chapter 23, 34, where he said, even as he was dying, Father, forgive them. For they don't understand. They do not know what they're doing. And they didn't. They were blinded, and he knew that. God knows that. He wasn't calling everyone, but Jesus literally prayed for them even as he was dying. So let's understand the kind of Savior we had. Why did Christ go through that? Well, most of us know the favorite uh, Protestant scripture along that line, but it's a wonderful scripture. John 3.16 is called the golden verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. And of course, God and Christ are one. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, the Father and I are one. They both have that attitude. They loved human beings. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who gave his son to die for you. You have a God who allowed his son to be down there just in you know, the big whips came across his back with these metal cleats and they were what? And no doubt he was writhing in pain and just kept on and on until the blood was all over the place. He allowed that so that we could be forgiven and so we could be healed. God does love us and God never gives up on us. If we give up on him, that's our problem, but he does not give up on us. So we want to really understand that, brethren, very, very profoundly and have a deep feeling about that. God allowed this suffering of Christ because he loved the world and because he and the Father are one. They have total outflowing concern in a way none of us do. We have our human nature, but they have total outflowing concern. We are their children. We're the ones that are going to be members of their family throughout all eternity. So we want to understand the love that they have for us. Back in Philippians chapter 2, if you would turn back there with me. Philippians now, chapter 2. I want to get a little bit of this uh, tea here for my throat. <clears throat> In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He tells us also to have outflowing concern. None of us do that perfectly. Every now and then it's so easy to lapse. Well, he did this, or let's watch him, or let's get back, or something. Well, we sometimes have to, in the work or in our lives, your children, to spank your children, or in the work we move people around or put square pegs into square pegs and round pegs into round holes and change their jobs or correct them or work with them. If we do it in love and total outflow of concern, that's fine. But we, we obviously doesn't mean by love you become namby-pamby and let sin ride right over your sin fill the church. I think you understand that. But your, your attitude should be genuine outflowing concern. You might have to deal with one bad guy in order to protect the flock as a whole. And God shows that. But our mind had better have outflowing concern for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Have that mind of Christ. And then he goes on, who being in the form of God did not consider Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And here is a mistranslation, brethren, that many of the modern commentators point out. It says he emptied himself. The Greek word here, as I mentioned, is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. -E it means emptying. He emptied himself. He who had been God, his face shined like the sun, his voice was like the voice of rolling thunder. He had total power. He gave that up to come into the human flesh so he could die. He emptied himself in many ways to come down here in the human flesh and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It is not just normal death. Mr. Armstrong 
died a wonderful death, if you have to put it like that, or lived a wonderful life. I know when sometimes when Mr. Armstrong died, I think Mr. Party didn't remember that. We had some people saying, and a couple letters came in I heard about, and they were saying, well, God punished Herbert Armstrong. Ha, ha, ha. Punished him. Wow. What a punishment. He lived 30, I mean, 93 and one half years, traveled all over the world, served people, built an entire work, including three colleges, <clears throat> lived a magnificent life in that sense, and finally went to sleep 23 and a half years later than King David, okay? <laughs> so God wasn't punishing him. He died in his wife's favorite rocking chair. He was not in pain at that point, according to Bob Geringer, who was there, our uh, Harrington, isn't it? I think Harrington, yeah. He was the male nurse at Big Sandy. He was over there, and I've talked to him. But anyway, so... We don't all live forever, but at any rate, he Christ didn't get to do that. Christ was cut off at age 33 and a half. He died 60 years younger than Mr. Armstrong, and he died a horrible death, even the death of the cross, in order to pay for my sins and in order to pay for your sins. So we have to think about that. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him because he was willing to totally empty himself. He had that spirit of total outflowing concern to bring into being other beings into the very family of God, the kingdom of God, the government of God for all eternity. God has exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those tongues that won't do that will not be around. <laughs> they will be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous, as the rest of the Bible tells us. Some people may not accept Him as Lord, but all who live will. So that is an important concept. We want to really understand that tremendous love that God the Father and Christ had for us and that total outflowing concern and try to emulate that and deeply appreciate that, meditate on that, think about that. Now back in Matthew 27, turn there if you would to Matthew chapter 27, uh, brethren, and try to catch this uh, scripture back here. Turn with me to Matthew 27, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 22. It says here that the time they were going to kill Christ, Pilate said to the Jews who were wanting to kill him, What then shall I do with Jesus called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? Pilate perceived that for envy, as it says in verse 18, they had delivered him up, their religious leaders. Now, a lot of the common people among the Jews loved Christ. You can see that during his ministry. But somehow the religious leaders stirred them up and stirred them up and got that part of the populace to, to help say these things. They may do that to us before it's all over. We are spiritual Jews. We are spiritual Jews. And they're going to stir people up and stir people up. And they say, these people don't love our nation. And they're talking about this crazy world tomorrow. And they're saying, we're going to be punished. And they're against us. I don't know what they'll say. They'll say all kinds of bad things, though, at the time. So don't be shocked. But anyway, even Pilate could figure that out. He wasn't stupid. He was pretty smart to be in that job. He said, why? What has he done? When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, 
but rather a tumult was rising. He didn't want the Caesar to remove him for allowing these riots to go on. He took water, washed his hands, as though that was going to forgive him, you see. Of course, he was carnal. He says, well, I'll get off the hook. His wife had warned him. He said, don't have anything to do with that righteous man, for I've had a vision about him. But he, he was kind of scared. He didn't know what, what to do. But right now, the people were yelling, yelling. So he said, I'll just wash my hands and get off. I'm innocent. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, verse 26, he delivered him to, the, to be crucified. Now, a number of commentaries talk about the scourging and, and books about Christ. And they've gone back into history. And they show that scourging that took place at that time and how it was a, a whip with a man who was trained to use the whip to tear the body apart called a, a Roman lictor. That's where we get our term. I'm going to give you a licking. You know, our child, it comes from this term lictor, one giving a licking. And they would tear the man's hide. Little pieces of metal were in these leather straps. And then they'd jerk it back and tear tear until blood was running right down. So Christ gave his body to be beaten in that way so that you could be healed. And the more of us learn to have faith and cry out to God, Father, please put the gifts of healing in your church. I hope all of you will start doing that more than ever. Please put the gifts of healing in your church. We need it. We want it. Many of our brethren are sick all over. We need to be praying for them. I've heard some more even, even uh, just yesterday of, of someone that I prayed for. I don't have it here in my mind. I should have brought the thing home, the, the uh, note. But Mrs. Lynn Jacobson out in the Garden Grove Church, as Mr. Party knows, is suffering and had this awful operation. But then there are one or two others who have come along more recently. And they're not all old people. Some of them are and some of them are younger. They need healing. Christ allowed himself to go through that. And then verse 35, they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, where it was prophesied hundreds of years ahead of time that they would cast lots for his clothing. And that happened. And then you turn over to verse 45. After they crucified him, remember the time they crucified him was about uh, the third hour, as it says, or the way we would, and all commentaries agree with this, the way they counted time, it was 9 o'clock in the morning. They started counting, counting time at 6 o'clock in the morning. So he was crucified, nailed to the cross about 9 in the morning. About the sixth hour, which would have been high noon when it should have been the hottest part of the day and until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he gave up at all, but he was prophesying in a sense and he, he must have had that empty feeling and it was said back in the Psalms, as you know, that he would say that. And he actually was in Psalm 22, verse 1. And so he cried out in that sense that once our sins were placed on him as the sin bearer for a few minutes or a few hours, however it was, he must have sensed for the first time in eternity, because he had existed with God from eternity, that he was cut off from the Father. He was cut off because of our sins. Why have you forsaken me? And he had to then exist a while longer and, and carry on committing himself to God. So he cried out 
and some of those who stood by said he's calling for Elijah and so forth. And let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Verse 49. Now notice right after verse 49, by the way, brethren, I hope you'll put a little star right there. Right after verse 49, many of the ancient manuscripts tell us that, quote, another took a spear and pierced his side and there came out water and blood. This is, is, is mentioned and actually is in the Harmony of the Gospels that we used to go through in the freshman Bible class. And uh, it says in the uh, Clark's commentary that the Codex uh, Vaticanus, the Codex uh, Ephraim Regina, and five others all add these words. A whole bunch of the, of the, of the uh, old codices add these words. Another took a spear and pierced his side right then. He didn't die of a broken heart. He died because blood was just spurting out from this spear. I used to say to the freshman kids when I was teaching, well, a Roman soldier, Italian, young Italian, got emotional and rammed him in the side. Well, I love Italian food, <laughs> as my friends know, and I love Italian music and so on. Many of the Italians are wonderful people. It may not have been an Italian. The Romans had thousands of conscripts in their army. They'd hire people into their army from all over. It was an unknown and God meant it that, made it that way. An unknown young man doesn't make any difference. Maybe actually God put it in the young man's heart to do it, probably did in mercy. Jesus may have cried out in pain or something. He was hanging on a cross, and he probably turned and said, Oh, shut up, and wham, and wham, the spear right in his side. And then he screamed and, and passed, and the spirit left his body at that point. If you read all the accounts, Mark and Luke and so on, you, you see that right as then when he cried out again. And then Jesus, verse 50, when he had cried out again, you see, he had just got through crying out, which it doesn't say here in verse 49, but the other uh, gospels pointed out he cried out. Why? The spear went in his side. That's when he started to die, when that blood began to spurt out. And then he screamed again when he cried out again with a loud voice, he wasn't a sissy. If you had a spear jammed in your side, you'd go, ah! you better believe you'd say something, probably. Maybe you'd say nothing. You're real, real tough. But anyway, Christ had something come out of his mouth. And behold, the veil of the temple right then was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Right when the Creator died, because God Almighty created everything through Jesus Christ, the whole creation convulsed, at least that part of the world. And they had a big earthquake, and the creation was shaking because the Creator had just died. And because of this local earthquake, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. So even then, many bodies of the saints were there, and the, and the bodies, the, the, the graves were split open by God, and they came in to Jerusalem after his resurrection though somehow God had them stay there and then resurrected them after Jesus resurrected to bear witness it wasn't that they were Moses or Elijah if the people some guy came back into town and said well I'm Moses they said oh I'm Superman who are you you know they kidded with him they wouldn't have recognized Moses these were people they knew who were brethren who had died during Christ's ministry and believed on Christ and God let them be resurrected back to physical life for a few more years so this happened, and that was another additional witness to Christ's death and resurrection, of course, 
which was, uh, which was wonderful in that way. Tremendous thing. The veil of the temple was ripped right in two, a great big heavy woven like a heavy rug. It was just torn right in two. Man had been separated from God, as you know, because of Adam's sin and all of our sins since, and that, that veil symbolized that. And when Christ was crucified, right at that moment, God supernaturally by lightning or some other way, we don't know, to make any difference. He tore that veil, ripped it right in two because before that, only the high priest, remember Leviticus 16, only the high priest once a year was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Now, you and I can go into the Holy of Holies in a sense through our prayers every day, several times a day, and approach the Creator, the Governor, of the heavens and the earth, who, if we have given our lives to Him, is our real Father. So we have to understand that that was made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. So these are wonderful things. Turn over to chapter 28, chapter 28 after His resurrection. Then Jesus came and spoke to His disciples, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Chapter 28, verse 18. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why we want to go on television and radio. God commands us to go unto all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always. We usually emphasize how we're to teach the same thing. We're not to introduce some new ideas, and we don't. We're not to say that Christ's teaching about the commandments is all done away, because it isn't. But the emphasis here I want to mention is, Lord, I am with you always. Christ said He would be with us. He is with us, brethren, as our elder brother, our Savior, our living head, our merciful high priest who's there always at God's right hand, praying for us, praying with us, helping us, guiding us, our coming King, and even now, our friend, when we come to understand, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To the very end, He will be with us if we are with Him, if we don't turn aside. All right, turn now to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 4. Hebrews, brethren, chapter 4, and here, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, seeing that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to understand. He's able to sympathize, but was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. There is no type of temptation that Jesus did not go through. That doesn't mean he's tempted in every single little specific way, but in all the ten points of the law, murder, adultery, hate, uh, covetousness, everything. He was tempted in every way, and probably several times in every one of the points of the law. He was a normal 30 to 33-year-old young man during his ministry, and of course before that, he also lived a perfect life. The Jewish girls in Israel must have been extremely beautiful because there are a lot of hills there. There was no smog. The wheat germ was in the wheat. They had perfect soil, perfect water. 
and Jesus was in perfect health. And he, a lot of you guys think, oh, boy, I have this problem. I used to kid the Ambassador College boys about this, but no, Jesus had human nature too. Those girls were beautiful, but he had to think, well, I am married to the church, and even if I would die, or if I would marry, my wife would be a widow right away, so he had several reasons not to marry, so he just got busy in the work. He just got busy in the work. And uh, that's, that was very wonderful that he did do that by committing himself to God. But he was tempted in every way like any normal young man. I could just picture how when those Jews grabbed him and tried to throw him off the brow of the hill there in uh, Nazareth after his first sermon, you remember. Uh, I used to think I was a tough guy. I wasn't very tough. I wasn't very big, but I was good for my size, I guess, in the golden gloves. But I picture if they grabbed me to start me, my first reaction was to be pow. Well, Jesus didn't have that reaction. He just asked God to protect him, and somehow he got out of there, and they did not throw him off the hill, you see. But he had to put his trust in God and yet not hate those people. He never hated those people. It never says he tried to pick up a rock and, and, you know, crush their skull or hit their bloody their nose or do anything. He never did any of that. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. Let us, therefore, we have a, a high priest, brethren, sitting at God's right hand who really understands. And you young men need to understand that, too. He does understand exactly what you're going through. And you young women. But he went through it. He showed us right. It's able to, you can do the right thing with God's help. I can do all things through Christ, you know, who helps me. It says back in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. So we can do whatever there is through him living his life with us. Let us therefore, having this kind of a high priest, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Before we weren't able to go into the Holy of Holies, but now we are. And God is there and God will hear us and God is our Father and Christ is our elder brother and Christ is our merciful high priest who understands we want to really have that confidence and that loving relationship. Back here in chapter 13, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13, brethren, at this point, it says in verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. So many in this society, we want another television, we want another car, we want another, we want another, we want more and more and more. And be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise. I will never leave you. I don't care what trial you're in. Remember when Paul and Silas were in jail? and say, oh, he's left us, we're in jail. No, says at midnight, they were singing praises to God. What a crazy thing to sing praises to God when you've been thrown in jail. Sounds like that, doesn't it? Except God was very real to them. So they knew God would take care of them. They were singing praises to God while they were in jail. And what happened? Can God, I've often thought maybe God will come after Mr. Ames or me or some of us and if I get real loud and bad someday and tell them what, 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 you know, they're going to, maybe they might get me before some court and I would insult the court, maybe not meaning to, and they would decide to put me in the, in the high-tech prison out in Colorado where every, surrounded by electric sensors and every modern device. Wow, they put you in the middle of that prison, you could never get out, right? No, it's so simple for God if he wants to just open the windows or open the doors and take you out the, 
out through a window. It doesn't make any difference to God. That's what you have to understand. To really understand that being is our Father and that being is our elder brother and our merciful high priest and he has all the power in the universe and we don't need to be afraid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. We're going to go, th go through some real storms over the next several years, brethren. All kinds of, of terrible situations. I'm talking, not talking about just rainstorms. I'm talking about terrible storms in our whole society. Riots and persecution and murder and other nations attacking us and persecution coming down on us personally. We're going to go through raging storms. But we will have to believe in this God that has always been with His true servants down through time. And having been in the church or part of the church in a general sense for nearly 60 years, I can testify to that. I've seen that to the degree that people I've known over the last 60 years who obeyed God and served God, God blessed them and God guided them over all. God let some die, and we don't understand why sometimes He let Mrs. O'Gwen's husband die. He let Mr. McNair die. Why? Probably, as I may explain later, if we have time to get to all my scriptures, they had already made it, and they did not need further testing. I think I may need further testing. I think some of us need further testing and working with. Maybe their attitude was so right they didn't need that, and maybe there were other reasons. But let's not assume that God did something bad or God wasn't there. Every hair of our head is numbered, and God knows exactly where we are, and He has a way of working with and fashioning and molding each one of us in His mercy. So He's working with, He doesn't forget anybody about at any time. Back in, in John, if you would turn back to the Gospel of John again, <clears throat> and let's turn back in the early part of the Gospel of John, this time to chapter 5. John uh, chapter 5, uh, brethren, and verse 21. Jesus said, <clears throat> For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Christ is going to be the one who resurrects us. Did you know that? Not God the Father. Christ will do it. For as the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. To me, that's a very important uh, verse. You know, most people don't really think that through, that we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. The Father has a greater degree of power, but in the same general way, we can always recognize that the Father has more authority. But that worship, that obedience, that tremendous regard and high esteem, that adoration, that goes to Christ just as to God the Father. And there are several verses in the Bible that say that, but this is the most complete and direct places where it is, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Verse 25, Most assuredly I say, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of who? Of the Father? No, they'll hear the voice of the Son of God. He is the one who's going to call you and me out of the grave if we die before Christ comes. The voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
So Christ is the one who will do this. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. See, he is our judge, as we saw earlier. We're not going to be judged by God the Father directly, certainly indirectly, but God the Father will judge us through Christ because Christ was tempted at all points like as we are, and he really understands even more thoroughly because he was here for 33 and a half years in the human flesh. He says, I've been there, I've done that. And he, he, he can be even a better, more merciful, understanding judge if that is possible. But at any rate, God has chosen to do it that way, that he would judge us through the one who's actually been here. So he's given him authority to execute judgment, not because he's the son of God. Notice how it's worded. Christ is our judge, not because he's the son of God, but because he's the son of man, because he went through the human experience and understands us. So then he shows how all are going to come up out of the graves eventually. Now turn, brethren, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians again, but this time chapter 1. And a wonderful passage that can be misunderstood and was by one of our ministers once upon a time back in Worldwide. <laughs> but I better not dwell on that. Paul writes here in Philippians 1, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. One of our ministers in Worldwide was using this to try to say Mr. Armstrong could not die. If he died, that would invalidate the Bible. He literally said that, and he just misunderstood this verse. He said, this proved that. Mr. Armstrong had to finish the work. Well, this is not talking about the work of God. It's not talking about the getting out the gospel. Notice it's talking about our salvation, being confident that he who began a good work not through you to the world, but a good work as God begins a good work in us by calling us, giving us His Holy Spirit, you see, then He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if people die early, we might think too early, what's the answer? No doubt the answer is because either they have turned aside and done something awful, or else, more likely, if they've been serving God, that, that Christ has finished the work in them that he wanted to do, and they are ready. They are ready. And I know I have, I remember Mr. Hal Baird. How many of you remember Mr. Baird? You young people look around, not many, but several of you do. He was a wonderful minister. Raymond Manair and I baptized Hal Baird Jr. in a swamp in East Texas about midnight back in 1952, and later he came to Ambassador College. He was several years older than me. Later he became a minister and was out in the field pastoring a number of churches, a very fine man, but he was eight or 12 years older than me, whatever, or 15, I don't know. But anyway, a number of years ago, I was at Big Sandy as the deputy chancellor, and Burt McNair was the pastor of the Big Sandy Church at that point, and he took Mr. Baird around, who was beginning to fail physically because he was getting older, and he was assisting Mr. McNair, and they were very dear friends. 
And finally, Mr. Baird began to have various things go wrong with him. I don't want to describe them all, but he had five or six things just start to go wrong with his whole body. And he'd come to the faculty dining room, and he'd sit next to me sometime, because I'd known him, of course, longer than any of them. And he'd say, well, I'm ready. I'd say, no, you're not ready. I'd say, you stay around. We need you. He said, no. He said, there's too many things going wrong. I'm ready. <laughs> well, after about six months of that, he did die. And Bert McNair performed his funeral. And I remember Mr. McNair said, he said, brethren, Mr. Baird is exactly where he wanted to be. He wanted to go to sleep and await the resurrection. His body was coming apart. It wasn't fun to live anymore. And Mr. Baird was ready. He was serving God. His attitude was right but he just preferred to depart and be with Christ at that point, if you see what I mean. So we have to always think of the bigger picture sometimes, even in death. God will not give up on us. So anyone who dies in God's work and is faithful, then Christ has completed the work in them that he needed to do, and they were no doubt ready, and they can be in the first resurrection, and they're not going to go half to go through the trials and the tests and, and, and various things that are going to come on us in years to come. And in that way, as Paul wrote a little bit later, he said, I would rather depart and be with Christ. He said, uh, uh, well, anyway, I, I, I better not start reading that, but that's a little bit later here in this same chapter. He would rather depart and be with Christ but he said, for your sake, I think I should stay on. He said in verse 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So if it's more needful for me to remain in the flesh to carry on the work, then God will let me carry on the work. Not because I'm better, but because there's a need in the work. And also maybe he, he thinks, well, Rod Meredith hasn't learned the lessons he needs to learn, so I'll keep him around and beat my message into his head a few more years. <laughs> and that's what he has to do to some of you too. He keeps us around so he can teach us the lessons we need to learn while we're here in this physical flesh. So we want to have a big picture and try to have God's mind about these things so we can understand, really, because we're going to be living in some hard times. We need to have the mind of Christ when these things come upon us. Now back in John, the 14th chapter, brethren, John, the Gospel of John, and chapter 14, wonderful passage. I love to expound the whole book of John. Verse 3 says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and where I go you know the way you know. And then Thomas, remember doubting Thomas, you remember him, he's always wondering. Thomas said, Lord, we do not where you're going, know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the total exemplification of everything God has in mind. I am the way. This whole life I lived, how you see me live all day long, getting up in the morning and being warm and loving and going out early way up on the hillside to pray to God, coming back and loving and serving and healing and blessing and teaching all day long, never losing my temper, never having respect of persons, never playing odd games, never sinning, never cussing, never lusting, never... All day long, I've shown you the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all that I've taught, of course, and the way I lived, show that. He says, I am the way, the truth. He taught the truth and the life. He lived the life. Magnificent human being, and yet he was, at the same time, 
not just a normal average human being, but God in the flesh, Emmanuel. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we have to understand Christ and the total meaning of his life and how he exemplifies God perfectly and love him, worship him, adore him. Now turn back to John 15, if you would. John 15 and beginning in verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. He said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the way he magnified the law. We're to love each other, but not just the way we decide to do. But as I have loved you, he showed how we're to love one another. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And notice what he's saying. You are my friends. And brethren, we need to really think about that profoundly. You are my friends. We're not just his servants, his sons, or his younger brothers. We're his friends. Christ adopts us as a friend. He makes us a friend. And we will be throughout all eternity his friend and throughout all eternity his younger brother if we make it into the resurrection. No longer do I call you servants or doulos, bond slave, for a bond slave doesn't know what his master is doing. Back in that society, they had the hierarchical structure, the class structure. You told the servant, go do this. In America, we would try to thank them or give them a tip or something, but they didn't have that in their society in the same way back then. He says normally a boss doesn't tell the guy why he's doing it or explain why later, but he says, I, I'm all, but I, I, you're my friends. All things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. I explained the reason for everything. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And brethren, he could say that to you. I chose you and anointed you, anointed you with his spirit, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, if you ask it sincerely in Christ's name through his authority within God's will and have faith, he may give you. So we are to understand that and learn to live that way and have faith in that and know that Christ is not only our Savior, He's not only the living head of the church, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. He's not only our merciful, faithful high priest, as it tells us back in Hebrews 4, 15. He is our friend. He's our friend. And He will be our friend and our elder brother throughout all eternity, watching over us, loving us, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8. And let's begin here in verse 13. He said in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And of course, you never repent, you'll, you'll stay dead or you'll, you'll, whatever. You'll die. But if by the Spirit, through Christ in you, through the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and that's what we're to exemplify during these days of unleavened bread that are coming up, putting sin out, overcoming sin, then he said, you will live. For as many as are led by, not they once upon had a little flicker of the Holy Spirit, Many have had a flicker, but let the flicker die or whatever, or left the church, 
or whatever, but as many as are led by, that's the point, that are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, which again is a mistranslation or a wrong translation. Actually, the Greek expression, the commentaries acknowledge as susceptible, they, like you're susceptible to a disease, but they, this is the correct way they word it. It's susceptible to be translated adopted. It's susceptible correctly to be translated to make a son. And this is the right translation. The Living Bible has it the right way. Some others do. So it says, as many, excuse me, but you have received the spirit of adoption or spirit of sonship. You have received the spirit of sonship if you have the very nature of God in you through the Holy Spirit. He begets you. He doesn't just adopt you. He impregnates you. He puts within you His very nature, the very nature of God by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, not some adopted father, but Daddy, Father. He is your real Father, that intimate Abba. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We know the rest of the Scriptures tell us Christ is going to share eternity with the Father. He's heir of the whole world and eventually the whole universe were co-heirs with Christ. And that's a magnificent thing. If indeed we suffer with Him, and we will have to go through trials, brethren, be ready. But know that you have a loving Father, that you have a very loving and merciful and totally understanding high priest and elder brother, that you talk to God through Him, and that you say, Father in heaven, it's not wrong to picture it. In general, not features. You don't know the features, but picture another blinding light at the right hand of God the Father. He is there. He's our high priest. He's alive. He's watching you. Every hair of your head is numbered. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If we suffer that we may be glorified together, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not to us. The Greek word is in you see, the glory is revealed in us because we will be born. We will explode, in a sense, from being a human being into being a spirit being and suddenly have a different dimension of existence as sons of the living God and younger brothers of Jesus Christ in the family of God because that great being, God the Father, and the other magnificent being, Jesus Christ, existed from eternity and they made us in their image to be their sons. And Christ was willing to empty Himself to die for us, to reconcile us to the Father so we can be full members, full members of the family of God forever. So as we approach the Passover, let's be thankful. Let's be grateful. Let's realize how real God is. I'd like to give you example after example of healing, of all the things God has done. I know going way back in this work, how, how we got started and every time we had a problem, God would take care of it how when we had to move back here and we didn't know how we were going to do it because we didn't have enough money, all of a sudden Raymond Jorgensen, this bachelor farmer up in Iowa, gave us his whole farm and barns and tractors and trucks and property and the whole thing added up to over $900,000. How were we able to move here? Raymond Jorgensen. But Christ working through Raymond Jorgensen and others gave very generously right when we needed that money. He will never leave us. 
He will never forsake us. Right at the end, just before Mrs. Beam thought she was going to die, she was screaming and clawing herself. She said, I can't stand it anymore. Please ask God to either heal me right now or let me die. And so she was prayed for, and the minister told me that I said to her, she healed right then. Well, no, he said it seemed like a long time, but it was just one or two minutes. But, you know, it was like that people, the women around were crying, and she was still, and all of a sudden her hand just went limp. She says, I'm healed. And from then on, the cancer began to pass out of her body. She was totally well, lived for many years. God does heal. God does deliver. God does bless. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We have a merciful Savior and a merciful high priest. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's never leave nor forsake Him. Let's give our lives to Him. And as we come to the Passover, let's have that faith and that deep sense of appreciation for what God and for what Jesus Christ has done for us.